From New York, this is Democracy Now! For me, when I think of Juneteenth, part of what I think about is both the both and in this of it. That it is this moment in which we mourn the fact that freedom was kept from hundreds of thousands of enslaved people for, for years and for months after it had been uh, attained by them. And then at the same time, celebrating the end of one of the most egregious things that this country has ever done. Today, a Democracy Now! Juneteenth special, the federal holiday commemorating the day in 1865 when enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, learned of their freedom more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. We'll speak to Clint Smith, author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Then we remember the life and legacy of the legendary actor, singer, civil rights activist Harry Belafonte, who died in April at the age of 96. Paul Robeson, who was a mentor, and a man for whom I had enormous love and admiration, was the supreme example for me of how to use your life with dignity and with courage. Not bravado, but genuine social courage to put all that's on the line to come up against the forces of oppression. We'll hear Harry Belafonte in his own words. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, a Democracy Now! special on this, the newly created Juneteenth federal holiday, which marks the end of slavery in the United States. The Juneteenth commemoration dates back to the last days of the Civil War, when Union soldiers landed in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865, with news that the war had ended, and enslaved people learned they were freed. It was two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. In 2021, President Biden signed legislation making Juneteenth the first new federal holiday since Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. On the day after Biden signed the legislation, I spoke to the writer and poet Clint Smith, author of the book How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. I began by asking him about traveling to Galveston, Texas, and his feelings on Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday. As you mentioned, I went to Galveston, Texas. Uh, I was, I've been writing this book for four years, uh, and I went two years ago. Uh, and it was marking the 40th anniversary uh, of when Texas uh, had made Juneteenth a state holiday. And it was the Al Edwards prayer breakfast. The late Al Edwards Sr. is the state legislator, a uh, black state legislator, um, who made possible uh, and advocated for the legislation that turned Juneteenth into a holiday, a state holiday in Texas. And so I went in part because I wanted to spend time with people who were the actual descendants of those who had been freed by uh, Mason, uh, General Gordon Granger's uh, General Order Number 3. And it was a really remarkable moment because I was in this place, on this island, on this land, with people for whom Juneteenth was not an abstraction. It was not a performance. It was not merely a symbol. It was, it was part of their tradition. It was part of their lineage. It was an heirloom that had been passed down that had made their lives possible. And so I think I gained a more intimate sense of what that holiday meant 
and and to sort of broaden uh, broaden out more generally, you you spoke to how uh, it was more than two and a half years after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, and it was an additional two months after uh, General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox, effectively ending the Civil War. So it wasn't only two years after the Emancipation Proclamation; it was an additional two months after the Civil War was effectively was effectively over, and. So for me, when I think of Juneteenth, part of what I think about is both the both andedness of it, that it is this moment in which we mourn the fact that freedom was kept from hundreds of thousands of enslaved people for, for years and for months after it had been uh, attained by them. And then at the same time, celebrating the end of one of the most egregious things that this country has ever done. And I think what we're experiencing right now is a sort of marathon of cognitive dissonance in the way that is reflective of the black experience as a whole, because we are in a moment where we had the first new federal holiday in over 40 years, uh, in a moment that is that is important to celebrate uh, the, the Juneteenth and to celebrate the end of slavery um, and to have it recognized as a national holiday. And at the same time that that is happening, we have a state-sanctioned effort across state legislatures across the country that is pr- attempting to prevent teachers from teaching the very thing helps young people understand the context from which Juneteenth emerges. And so I think that we we recognize that as a symbol, uh, Juneteenth is not that it matters, that it is important, uh, but it is clearly not enough. Uh, and I think what the fact that Juneteenth has happened is reflective of a shift in our public consciousness, uh, but also of the work that black Texans and black people across this country have done for, for decades Uh, to make this moment possible. And can you explain more what happened in Galveston in 1865, and even, as you point out, what the Emancipation Proclamation actually did two and a half years before? Right. So the Emancipation Proclamation is is often a widely misunderstood document. So it did not sort of wholesale free the enslaved people throughout the Union. Uh, It did not free enslaved people in the Union. In fact, there were several border states that were part of the Union that continued to keep their enslaved laborers, states like uh, Kentucky, states like Delaware, states like Missouri. And what it did was it was a military edict that was attempting to uh, free enslaved people in Confederate territory. But the only way that that edict would be enforced is if Union soldiers went and took that territory. And so part of what many enslavers realized right, and, and realized correctly was that Texas would be one of the last frontiers that Union soldiers would be able to come in and enforce the Emancipation Proclamation um, if they ever made it there in the first place, because this was two years prior to the end of the Civil War. And so you had enslavers from Virginia and from uh, North Carolina and from all of these states in the Upper South who brought their enslaved laborers uh, and relocated to Texas in in ways that increased the population of enslaved people in Texas by the tens of thousands. Uh, And so when Gordon Granger comes to Texas, uh, he is making clear and letting people know that the Emancipation Proclamation uh, had been enacted in ways that because of the topography of Texas um, and because of how spread out and rural and, and far apart from uh, different ecosystems of information many people were, uh, a lot of enslaved people didn't know that the Emancipation Proclamation had happened. And, and some didn't even know that generally had surrendered at Appomattox two months prior. And so part of what this is doing is uh, making clear to the 250,000 enslaved people in Texas um, that they had actually been granted freedom two and a half years prior and that the war that this was all fought over had ended uh, two months before. During the ceremony, 
Making Juneteenth a federal holiday, President Biden got down on his knee to greet Opal Lee, the 94-year-old activist known as the grandmother of Juneteenth. This is Biden speaking about Lee. As a child growing up in Texas, she and her family uh, would celebrate Juneteenth. And Juneteenth 1939, when she was 12 years old, the white, a white mob torched her family home. But such hate never stopped her anymore than to stop the vast majority of you I'm looking at from this podium. Over the course of decades, she's made it her mission to see that this day came. It was almost a singular mission. She's walked for miles and miles, literally and figuratively, to bring attention to Juneteenth, to make this day possible. And this is Opal Lee speaking at Harvard School of Public Health. I don't want people to think Juneteenth is just one day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is too much uh, educational components. We have too much to do. I even advocate that we do Juneteenth, that we celebrate freedom from the 19th of June to the 4th of July. Because mm-hmm. we were free. On the 4th of July, 1776. Mm -hmm. That would be celebrating freedom. You understand? If we were able to do that. And that is Opal Lee, considered the grandmother um, of Juneteenth. And Clint, one of the things you do in your book is you introduce us to grassroots activists. Um, This doesn't come from the top. This comes from years of organizing, as you point out, in Galveston itself and with people like—not that there's anyone like Opal Lee— yeah, no, absolutely. Part of what this book is is doing, it is an attempt to uplift the stories uh, of people who don't often get the attention um, that they deserve in how they shape the historical record. So that means the public historians who work at these historical sites and plantations. That means the museum curators. That means the activists and the organizers, people like Take Them Down NOLA in New Orleans, who are who pushed the city council and the mayor to make possible uh, the fact that in 2017, these statues would come down, uh, several Confederate statues in my hometown in New Orleans. And part of when I think about someone like uh, Miss Opoli, part of what I think about is our proximity to this period of history, right? Slavery existed for 250 years in this country and has only not existed for 150. And, you know, the way that I was taught about slavery growing up in elementary school, we were made to feel as if it was something that happened in the Jurassic Age, that it was the Flintstones, the dinosaurs, and slavery, almost as if they all happened at the same time. But the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture alongside the Obama family in 2016 was the daughter of an enslaved person, not the granddaughter or the great-granddaughter or the great-great-granddaughter, the daughter of an enslaved person is who opened this museum, the Smithsonian, in 2016. And so there's for clearly for so many people, uh, there are there are people who are alive today who were raised by, who knew, who were in community with, who loved he, people who were born into intergenerational chattel bondage. And so this history that we tell ourselves was a long time ago wasn't, in fact, that long ago at all. And part of what so many activists and grassroots uh, public historians and, and organizers across this country recognize is that if we don't fully understand and account for this history that actually wasn't that long ago, that in the scope of human history was only just yesterday, then we won't fully understand the how our, our contemporary landscape of inequality today. We won't understand how slavery shaped the political, economic, and social infrastructure of this country. And when you have a more acute understanding of how slavery 
shape the infrastructure of this country, then you're able to more effectively look look around you and see how the reason one community looks one way and another another community looks another way is not because of the people in those communities, but is it because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And I think that that is central to the sort of uh, public pedagogy that so many of these activists and organizers who have been attempting to make Juneteenth uh, a holiday and bring bring attention to it um, as an entry point to think more more wholly and, and honestly about the legacy of slavery have been doing. During an interview on CNN, Democratic Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called out the 14 Republican Congress members, all white men, who voted against making Juneteenth a federal holiday. This is pretty consistent with, I think, the Republican base, and it's whether it's trying to fight against teaching basic history around racism um, and the role of racism in U.S. history to, you know, there's a direct through line from that to denying Juneteenth, the day that we, that is widely recognized and celebrated as the symbolic kind of day that to represent the end of slavery in the United States. If you could respond to that, Clint Smith, and also the fact that on the same day yesterday, um, the Senate minority leader said they would not be supporting the For the People Act, the Voting yeah, I mean, Rights I think, Act. Absolutely. I, I think very clearly uh, the critical race theory, um, the idea of it is being used as a boogeyman, and it is being misrepresented and distorted in way by people who don't even know what critical race theory is, right? So we should be clear that the thing that people are calling critical race theory is just that is the language that they are using to talk about uh, the idea of teaching any sort of history that rejects the idea that America is a singularly exceptional place. And, and that we should not account for the history of harm that has been enacted to create opportunities in intergenerational wealth for millions of people that has come at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people across generations. And so what, part of what is happening in these state legislatures across the country um, and with regard to uh, the the effort to push back against uh, teaching of history, 1619 Project, critical race theory and the like, um, is a recognition that we have developed in this country a more sophisticated understanding, a more sophisticated framework, a more sophisticated public lexicon with which to understand how slavery, how, how racism was not just an interpersonal phenomenon, it was a historic one. It was a structural one. It was a systemic one. I want you to talk more about your book, how the word is passed, of reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Can you talk about the journey you took? Uh, you were just mentioning where you grew up in Louisiana, um, the map of the streets of Louisiana, and why you feel it is so critical not only to look at the South— but your chapter on New York is something that people will be—many will be—shocked by, the level of—when people talk about the South and slavery, that New York, of course, had enslaved people. It did. It was really important for me uh, to include a chapter on New York City and a place in the North more broadly— in part because, you know, while the majority of places I visit are in the South, because South, the South is where slavery was saturated and where it was uh, most um, intimately tied to the social and economic infrastructure uh, of that society, it most certainly also existed in the North. What a lot of people don't know is that New York City, uh, for an extended period of time, was the second largest slave port in the country after Charleston, South Carolina. That in 1860, on the brink of uh, the Civil War, when S South Carolina was about to secede from the Union after the election of Abraham Lincoln, 
that New York City's mayor, Fernando Wood, proposed that New York City should also secede from the union alongside the southern states because New York's financial, political, uh, and political infrastructure were so deeply entangled and, and tied to the slaveocracy of the South. Uh, also, that the Statue of Liberty was originally conceived by Edouard de Laboulet, a, a French abolitionist who conceived of the idea of the Statue of Liberty and giving it to the United States uh, as a gift, that it was originally conceived as an idea um, to celebrate the end of the Civil War and to celebrate abolition. Uh, and so, but over time, that meaning has been, uh, even through the conception of the statue, right, the original conception of the statue actually had uh, Lady Liberty breaking shackles, like a pair of broken shackles on her wrists to symbolize um, the end of slavery. Uh, and over time, it became very clear that that would not have the sort of wide stream uh, or wide mainstream support of uh, people across the country, obviously, this having been just uh, not too long after the end of the Civil War, so there were still a lot of fresh wounds. And so they shifted the meaning of the statue to be more about um, a sort of inclusivity, more about the American experience, the American project, the American promise, um, the promise of democracy, and and sort of obfuscated the original meaning to the point to the point where even the design changed. And so they replaced the the, the shackles with a tablet and the torch, and then put the shackles very subtly, um, sort of underneath her robe. And you can so, but the only way you can see them. Uh, these broken chains, these broken links are from a helicopter or from an airplane. And in many ways, I think that that is a microcosm for how we hide the story of slavery across this country, that these chain links are hidden out of sight, out of, out of view for, of most people um, from on under the robe of Lady Liberty uh, and how the story of slavery across this country is, is very, as we see now, very intentionally um, trying to be hidden and kept from uh, so many people so that we have a fundamentally inconsistent understanding of the way that shape, slavery shaped our contemporary society today. Glenn, before we end, um, you are an author, you're a writer, you're a teacher, and you are a poet. Can you share a poem with us? I'd be happy to. And so when you're a, a poet writing nonfiction, um, you, that very much animates the way that uh, I approach the text. And so this is a uh, part of the, this is an adaptation or an excerpt from the end of one of my chapters that originally began as a poem that I wrote when I was trying to think about uh, some of these issues that I brought up. <clears throat> Growing up, the iconography of the Confederacy was an ever-present fixture of my daily life. Every day on the way to school, I passed a statue of PGT Beauregard riding on horseback, his Confederate uniform slung over his shoulder and his military cap pulled far down over his eyes. As a child, I did not know who PGT Beauregard was. I did not know he was the man who ordered the first attack that opened the Civil War. I did not know he was one of the architects who designed the Confederate battle flag. I did not know he led an army predicated on maintaining the institution of slavery. What I knew is that he looked like so many of the other statues that ornamented the edges of this city. These copper garlands of a past that saw truth as something that should be buried underground and silenced by the soil. After the war, the sons and daughters of the Confederacy reshaped the contours of treason into something they could name as honorable. We called it the lost cause, and it crept its way into textbooks that attempted to cover up a crime that was still unfolding. They told us that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man, guilty of nothing but fighting for the state and the people that he loved, that the Southern flag was about heritage and remembering those slain fighting to preserve their way of life. But see, the thing about the lost cause is that it's only lost if you're not actually looking. 
the thing about heritage is that it's a word that also means I'm ignoring what we did to you. I was taught the Civil War wasn't about slavery, but I was never taught how the declarations of Confederate secession had the promise of human bondage carved into its stone. I was taught the war was about economics, but I was never taught that in 1860, the four million enslaved black people were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined. I was taught that the Civil War was about states' rights, but I was never taught how the Fugitive Slave Act could care less about a border and spell Georgia and Massachusetts the exact same way. It's easy to look at a flag and call it heritage when you don't see the black bodies buried behind it. It's easy to look at a statue and call it history when you ignore the laws written in its wake. I come from a city abounding with statues of white men on pedestals and black children playing beneath them, where we played trumpets and trombones to drown out the Dixie song that still whistled in the wind. In New Orleans, there are over 100 schools, roads, and buildings named for Confederates and slaveholders. Every day, black children walk into buildings named after people who never wanted them to be there. Every time I would return home, I would drive on streets named for those who would have wanted me in chains. Go straight for two miles on Robert E. Lee, take a left on Jefferson Davis, make the first right on Claiborne. Translation, go straight for two miles on the general who slaughtered hundreds of black soldiers who were trying to surrender. Take a left on the president of the Confederacy who made the torture of black bodies the cornerstone of his new nation. Make the first right on the man who permitted the heads of rebelling slaves to be put on stakes and spread across the city in order to prevent the others from getting any ideas. What name is there for this sort of violence? What do you call it when the road you walk on is named for those who imagined you under a noose? What do you call it when the roof over your head is named after people who would have wanted the bricks to crush you? Clint Smith, author of the book How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, speaking on Democracy Now! in 2021, the day after Juneteenth became a federal holiday. Coming up, we remember the life and legacy of the legendary actor, singer, and human rights activist Harry Belafonte, who died in April at the age of 96. freedom over me And before I'd be a slave I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. And go home to my Lord and be free, everybody. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Sing it, sister. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Sung by Harry Belafonte. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We spend the rest of the hour remembering the remarkable life of Harry Belafonte. The pioneering actor, singer, civil rights activist died on April 25th at his home here in New York at the age of 96. Harry Belafonte grew up in Harlem and Jamaica. In the 1950s, he spearheaded the Calypso craze and became the first artist in recording history with a million-selling album. He was also the first African-American actor to win an Emmy. 
Along with his rise to worldwide stardom, Belafonte became deeply involved in the civil rights movement. One of Dr. Martin Luther King's closest confidants, he sent money to bail King out of the Birmingham city jail and raised thousands of dollars to release other imprisoned protesters. He financed the Freedom Rides, supported voter registration drives, and helped to organize the March on Washington in 1963. Harry Belafonte remained involved in political struggles at home and abroad. A longtime critic of U.S. foreign policy, he called for an end to the embargo against Cuba and took part in the anti-apartheid movement. Harry hosted former South African President Nelson Mandela on his triumphant visit to the United States after Mandela's release from prison in South Africa. Harry Belafonte also spoke out against the U.S. invasion of Iraq and once called President George W. Bush the, quote, greatest terrorist in the world. Harry Belafonte appeared on Democracy Now! numerous times. In 2011, I spoke to him at the Sundance Film Festival, where a documentary about his life titled Sing Your Song premiered. The film was co-produced by Harry Belafonte's daughter, Gina. This is a part of the film's trailer. Here's one of the greatest artists of the world, Harry Belafonte. Dale, Dale, be like come and be wonderful. One day, Paul Robeson came to see me and simply said, get them to sing your song and they'll want to know who you are. Even in that grainy black and white early TV, his personality came out. When Harry Belafonte went on the show with Petula Clark, they touched. People were like, oh my God. Whatever you're capable of doing as artists to help propagandize the civil rights revolution. Out of that came the true artistry of Harry Belafonte. There's a lot of people out here who are really pissed off. Harry gave us a piece of his fire. It gave us all strength. We are angry. We're upset. Harry motivated Martin because he is a man who didn't have to get involved and who did. We look around for some comfort and we don't find any. I remember once when he said, from the time I get up, the time I go to sleep, I seek out the injustices done to humankind. What do we want? It was always like that. It was always, let's do something. Harry did this over and over and over and over again. He took all our struggles and made them his own. The trailer for the documentary Sing Your Song about the life of Harry Belafonte, who's died at the age of 96. The film premiered at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, where I interviewed Harry. I asked him to talk about his first memories of being politically active. I'm not quite sure precisely when social and political, political activism became a visible brand of my DNA. But it seems to me that I was born into it. Uh, it is hard to be born into the, into the experience in the world of poverty and not develop some instinct for survival and resistance to those things that oppress you. 
My mother was a feisty lady. Although she had never gotten into a place of formal education, she came here and had to learn skills. She became a seamstress. She became an expert cook. She worked at odds and ends and jobs. Uh, she never resisted the opportunity to fight oppression, especially segregation and uh, all the things that, that plagued people who were immigrants. In her resistance, she counseled us constantly. Now, professionally, you started more acting before you really started professionally singing. Is that right? Well, acting was 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 the complete uh, key. Was the was was the main key to my getting involved in this play that we did of uh, Steinbeck's of Mice and Men. The director had created a character in the play who would become the balladeer. He would be a force. The director moved throughout the play to in the changing of sets, changing of cues, lighting cues, changing of mood, and this character will emerge from the darkness of the, of the corners of the stage and sing the songs of the day for those migrant workers coming from uh, Southwest America. And most of the songs that I had to sing were the songs that had been written by uh, Hughie Ledbetter and by. Uh, Woody Guthrie. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I opened the play with a Woody Guthrie song. Anyway, let me jump to the quick of this. It was approaching the material as an actor because the director spent a lot of time on what the balladeer would do, how he would position him, how he would be positioned, what the intensity of the moment of singing the song would mean to the development of the play, the scene. And in that context, I approached music as a tool well, that was really about social information. It wasn't just harmony and chords and notes and melody, all that was obvious, but it was the content and the power of song. And having been heard in that play, in that context, I was offered a job to uh, become a singer. And since I couldn't find other work, being a singer was a good challenge. So I put a repertoire together, walked into a nightclub called The Royal Roost, met guys like Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and Max Roach. They were your backup band? My first backup band <laughs> were those guys, and it, it just launched me into a world from which I have never looked back. One of the incredible stories told in Sing Your Song is your traveling through the South and trying to sing your song. Uh, talk about that experience. Paul Robeson, who was a mentor, and a man for whom I had enormous love and admiration, was the supreme example for me of how to use your life with dignity and with courage. Not bravado, but genuine social courage to put all that's on the line to come up against the forces of oppression who controlled so much of what you could or could not do as an artist. And to defy that fact and go after the larger goal of uh, changing up the faces of oppression uh, inspired me. And he went everywhere there was the opportunity to be heard. Whether it was going into Spain to sing during the great uh, Spanish Revolutionary War in the 30s, whether it was going to England, he went, he worked with the Welsh miners. As a matter of fact, his whole uh, engagement politically 
had been stimulated by what happened when he met the Welsh miners and he sang with them and he went into their world. But when I watched what he did and how many places he went for inspiration and mostly places where there was oppression, I felt those were the places in which I would be most nourished with what I should be doing with my own art and with my own platform. And certainly going into the south of the United States, listening to the voices of rural black America, listening to the voices of those who sang out against the Ku Klux Klan and out against segregation, and women who were the most oppressed of all uh, coming, rising to the occasion to protest against their conditions, became the arena in where my first songs were to emerge. And in that context, going in the south was for me uh, not to exploit commercially. That didn't come until later. And, uh, but to, be, to find the resources to nourish my own creativity. So there you were the star on the stage, but you couldn't go in the front door. Describe that experience. When I went to the South uh, on a professional basis, I had already arrived at a place where there was some visibility. I was going with uh, artists who were quite well known. Margin Gower Champion, a play called Three for the Night. We, in many of the places we booked throughout the universities of America, a lot of the places we went to the universities in the South, like Chapel Hill and the University of Texas. And in going to those places, we thought we were going not so much for the commercial uh, 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 reward of it, that's how we made our living, but to get the young people and to get our, our works before them. And in the places that we went, some of the auditoriums were public institutions. And when I got to some of these places, not only did they not want to let me in the theater, they didn't want to let me in the places in which we were booked to stay overnight. There were many instances where, by law, no black person could stay in this hotel. Or by law, no black person could be sitting at a table with a white member of the cast I mean, white woman member of the cast, and uh, not be sitting in the threat of uh, incarceration and uh, the law coming down on you. Because these were the tenets of the law. This wasn't just something that was capricious. It was written. It was the legislation of the state. And we had to come up against that. And the battle was, uh, was, was consistent. And even in the North, places like the Waldorf Astoria and the Palmer House in Chicago and these mighty institutions of culture that uh, had strict race laws. And uh, in accepting employment to go in these places, uh, rigidly placed in my contract was the, was the requirement that those laws and those rules be suspended and not be evoked during the time of my appearance. Harry Belafonte, when did you first meet? Dr. Martin Luther King. It was right after Birmingham, I'm sorry, Montgomery, right after the, Birmingham, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott had taken hold and the Montgomery bus uh, boycott association, the Montgomery Improvement Association. And uh, we all heard about this young minister and certainly we all heard of Rosa Parks. And I got a call and uh, before the strike had been settled even. They had not expected it to run so long. So this was in 1956? 1956. Uh, Dr. King called, and he was coming to New York to speak at the Abyssinia Baptist Church 
there was at that time uh, the, the head pastor was Adam Clayton Powell, who was in our Congress, and he was going to give a lecture, lecture to people from the ecumenical community. And uh, he said, "I'm coming to New York, and I'd love, a, have, love a, to have an opportunity to to meet you, uh, and I'd like to give you an idea of what it is that I do." And uh, I was absolutely fascinated that he called and. I wanted very much to meet him. So I went up to the church to hear him speak. And at the end of his lecture, he would retire to the basement. And for what he said would just be a few minutes, almost at the end of four hours, we exchanged thoughts and feelings and passions. And at the end of that meeting, I knew that I would be in his service and focus on the cause of the desegregation movement, the right to vote, and all that he stood for. Uh, although we understood how perilous the journey would be, we were not quite prepared for all that we had to confront. And uh, I think it was the most important time in my life. I wanted to go to a clip from Sing Your Song of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King, uh, do, you, do you fear for your life? I'm more concerned about doing a good job, doing something for humanity and what I consider the will of God than about longevity. Ultimately, it isn't so important how long you live. The important thing is how well you live. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Dr. Martin Luther King, and that clip is from the film about Harry Belafonte's life, about the history of the 20th century and coming into the 21st, called Sing Your Song. Harry, that relationship you had with Dr. King that um, went on for more than a decade until his assassination, how often did you speak? I would say easily we spoke every day. Obviously, we missed some days or some weekends, but the line was a was constantly filled with thoughts and ideas and, and challenge and uh, up-to-date uh, uh, decisions that were being made by a team of people that were always brought together when there was the moment uh, to escalate what we were doing or to be cautious about where we were going and also trying to broaden the base 
of our political relationships. Uh, so much of what our mission was doing was very dependent on our relationship with the federal government, with the institutions of, uh, of justice, because our plea was on a constitutional basis. The Constitution of the United States of America is being grossly violated by all the things that black people are experiencing. And if you don't have the instruments of government and the federal government on your side, including the courts, then you really can't do very much because all the laws that bound us to such cruel experience were state laws and there was no way to appeal the injustice within the state structure. So we had to find ways in which to broaden our campaign to include a national movement and it becoming a national movement to entice federal intervention. Do you know how many of those hundreds of conversations were recorded by the FBI? I think my safest bet would be all of them. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know when it would have started, but... Uh, have you gotten transcripts yes, of those conversations? Yes, i transcripts. i gotten some stuff from the uh, Freedom of Information Act. What's uh, very important is the fact that in the first 10 years of pursuing to get those files, I have letters that come from both the CIA and the FBI assuring me with all honesty and without having done all due diligence and deep research, such documents don't exist. There are none. And uh, eventually we had other sources that came through other ways in which they began to look through files and saw my name and situations. Like Taylor Branch, the historian. Taylor Branch, the historian. He was most uh, revealing in what he had done with the research, but also journalists and other people who were digging to get stories on other subjects came across those files and informed us. And then finally, the FBI capitulated and the first documents they sent, about hundreds of pages, uh, 99% of those pages were just one big black stroke. So the, the, this, the, 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 the insult against intelligence to have sent those kinds of files to a citizen whose rights were being violated was an insult to not only intelligence, but a crushing of the rights to information and to living in a, in a society that is more open and transparent. Talk about the march from Selma to Montgomery and who you brought down and the fear at that time and how these artists were also a kind of protection, the front lines, if you will, to protect the people who are at great risk, whose names were not famous. I think all the artists who did this understood that, understood that there was the threat to life and that some irrational person somewhere or some irrational group somewhere would find it very adventurous to mark them as one of the targets. There'd be a lot of heroism coming from the clan of these retarded people, emotionally and socially, to say they killed a celebrity, which in fact became in vogue not too shortly after this period. Look what they did to John Kennedy and to so many others, Dr. King, and etc. But these artists understood that. It wasn't, they were not blinded by it. They weren't blind to it, I should say. And by putting themselves on the line, 
it heightened public curiosity. And in heightening public curiosity, it meant that things were forced to be more transparent. And they weren't quite ready to reveal themselves that way. I'm talking about the opposition. Except it's important to note that at the very night of our concert and the night thereafter was when Mrs. Luwutso was murdered. And as a matter of fact, in the car in which she had taken one of the members of our uh, group to the airport, she was on her way back. Tony Bennett gave up his seat in that ride. Tony Bennett was yeah. there singing. He was there. And he, we gave up his seat to someone else, to Mrs. Lewitso and the young man that was with her. And she was and a the, white woman who was, wanted to support the struggle, the civil rights struggle, by driving and, people. Yes. She was a member of the Automobile Workers Union. And she volunteered to come down and was one of the organizers. And she drove cars to give people facility back and forth to the different places in which artists had to reside. And in doing that service, on her way back from the airport, she fell a target to murderers who killed her. Uh, that was to have been Tony Bennett's car. Uh, it was also important, I think, because the kind of artists that came down didn't have a platform in which they were going to be very visible. Singers could always be heard. But uh, uh, Leonard Bernstein came down. And when he and I spoke, Leonard said, I don't sing. There'll be no orchestra to conduct. But morally, I feel an obligation to let my presence be seen and to let people draw whatever strength from that they might be able to garnish to know that their struggle is, has touched all of us. So there are many who people don't even know about. You also helped fund Freedom Summer. Yes. Talk about that, putting your finances behind the struggle. I mean, you now, what, in 55 or before, had the first gold record, Calypso, gold million-selling record. First one in this country. Some had singles, but you had the record. Yeah, it was the first album to, to achieve the sales of a million. And uh, beyond all of the hoopla that came with that fact from the commercial end, the, stu the, the, uh, the studio and the, the record company, what was very prophetic about that moment for me was that it became symbolic of an instruction that Paul Robeson had given me. And he said, get them to sing your song and they'll want to know who you are. And in that little exchange down in the dressing room at the Village Vanguard, I woke up not too long after that wonderful piece of counsel to understand what he meant because that, saw, that, that album housed the song Banana Boat Deo and uh, the whole world was singing the song in the literal sense. But also, when I looked at the thousands of people that came to the stadiums to hear that song and others, I realized that the world was singing my song. And in Robeson's counsel, this was the opportunity to begin to spread truth and to open up opportunities for information to flow. It was the opportunity to reach out to other artists who may not have been heard otherwise or needed to be heard, like Miriam McCaber. America knew nothing about the struggles of the people in Africa. Miriam McCaber came. She got the platform. Ed Sullivan was convinced that in his world to let Miriam McCaber come on the program and to sing in, uh, in, in COSA 
And for him, it was an adventure. And he had been told by the programmers that they're not going to understand. And he said, oh, they'll understand. Harry likes it. It's good enough for me. And we got on the air, and there was Miriam McCabe singing these songs. And her popularity became quite intense. Which was in very important for the anti-apartheid struggle Absolutely. spreading into the United States. Absolutely. Not only the anti-apartheid struggle, but spread in the United States, but for a greater understanding of the liberation of the whole continent. Because there was uh, people like Sekature and Nareri and uh, 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 Tom and Boya and all of the, the, the whole entire continent, continent was awakened with the idea of uh, liberation. And having African artists, eventually Huey Masakela and others, uh, the whole idea of world music was seeded in the fact that the Banana Boat songs from the Caribbean it opened up more music from Cuba and the whole power in Afro-Cuban jazz and what those great Cuban artists did who, who, who pollinated American jazz with such great harmonies and song. All that stuff was a melting pot for a greater truth. Harry Belafonte speaking in 2011 on Democracy Now! He died on April 25th at the age of 96 here in New York. Harry Belafonte, in his own words, stay with us. My Brother, sung by Harry Belafonte from the Grammy-winning album he made with the South African singer Marion Makeba. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue our special with more from Harry Belafonte, the legendary actor, singer, civil rights activist who died in April at the age of 96 here in New York City. Harry Belafonte last appeared on Democracy Now! in 2016 at a special event at the historic Riverside Church in New York to celebrate Democracy Now!'s 20th anniversary. He co-headlined the event with Noam Chomsky. It was the first time they'd done a public event together. Harry spoke about Donald Trump, who'd just been elected president. I believe that Trump and bringing a new energy to the realization of the, uh, the vastness of uh, the reach of the Ku Klux Klan is uh, not something that has been out of the, our basic purview of thought. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, for some of us, is a constant, uh, it has a constant existence. Uh, it isn't until it touches 
certain aspects of white America that white America all of a sudden wakes up to the fact that uh, there's something called the Klan and that it does its mischief. Uh, what causes me to have great thought is something that's most unique to my experience. And as I said earlier tonight, uh, at the doorstep of being 90 years of age, I had thought I had seen it all and done it all, only to find out that at 89 I knew nothing. <laughs> but the most peculiar thing to me has been the absence of a black presence in the middle of this resistance. Not just the skirmishes that we've seen in Ferguson and uh, Black Lives Matter. And I think those protests and those voices being raised are extremely important. But we blew this thing a long time ago. When they started the purge against communism in this country and against the voice of those who saw hope in a, a design for socialist theory and for the sharing of wealth and for the equality of humankind. Uh, when we abandon our visual, our, vis uh, our vision and vigils on that topic, I think we sold out ourselves. Uh, a group of young black students in Harlem just a few days ago asked me what at this point in my life was I looking for. And I said, uh, what I've always been looking for, where resides the rebel heart? Without the rebellious heart, with about people who understand that uh, there's no sacrifice we can make that is too great to retrieve that which we've lost, we will forever be distracted with possessions and trinkets and title. And I think one of the big things that happened was that when black people began to be anointed by the trinkets of this capitalist society and uh, began to become big-time players and began to become heads of corporations, they became players in the game of our own demise. I think people have to be more adventurous. The heart has to find greater space for rebellion. Uh, so... for such thought because I was just recently reminded of Schwerner, Goodman and Cheney they sit particularly close to my own feelings and thoughts because I was one of the voices that was raised in recruiting those young students to participate in our rebellion David Goodman, Andrew's brother is here today I'm sure of it He's always at the right places. 
but uh, I think that there are those kinds of extremes that will be experienced in the struggle, but the real nobility of our existence is are we prepared to pay that price? And I think once the opposition understands that uh, we are quite prepared to die for what we believe in, that death for a cause does not just sit with ISIS, but sits with people, uh, workers, people who are generally prepared to push against uh, the theft of our nation and the distortion of our constitution, and that for many of us, no price is too great for that charge. I've been through much in this country. I came back from the Second World War, and while the world rejoiced in the fact that Hitler had been met and defeated, uh, there were some of us who were touched by the fact that instead of sitting at the table of feast at that great victory, we were worried about our lives because the response from many in America was the murder of many black servicemen that came back. And we were considered to be dangerous because we had learned uh, the capacity to handle weaponry. We had faced death in the battlefield. And when we came back, we had an expectation as the victors. We came back knowing that, yes, uh, we might have fought to end Hitler, but we also fought for our right to vote in America. And that in the pursuit of such rights uh, came the civil rights movement. Well, that can happen again. We just have to get out our old coats, dust them off, stop screwing around and just chasing the good times and get down to business. There's some ass kicking out here to be done. Harry Belafonte, speaking in 2016 at the historic Riverside Church in New York to celebrate Democracy Now!'s 20th anniversary. He co-headlined the event with Noam Chomsky. Harry died at his home in April at the age of 96 here in New York City. To see the full event, as well as all of our interviews with Harry Belafonte, you can go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.